Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Good morning. Y'all are really kind. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see y'all. Hey, I was uh, praying for you guys, praying for us, our time together um, this morning, and I just felt like we're supposed to start by praying for a handful of people. Are y'all up for that? So uh, what I sensed that God wanted to do was bring healing to anxiety, and and specifically, not exclusively, but specifically to people that are wrestling with stomach issues, like your anxiety overlaps into maybe you can't eat certain things, and it just is all kind of connected, and then also sleeplessness. And I just feel like God wants to bring healing to that this morning, and so we're just going to start off praying uh, for some people. So if you're wrestling with anxiety, sleeplessness, there is no shame in any of that, but we do want to see you touched, see you healed this morning. And so would you stand? Thank you for being courageous. And if you're around them and willing to pray, we're just going to take a couple of minutes as a church family just to lay hands on them and pray for them and just see what God does. God, I thank you that it is your desire to heal us and to bring strength to us. God, I thank you, Lord, that right now that you are healing bodies, that you are healing mindsets, God, that you are healing just the way that we even process life. Lord, we say anxiousness goes in Jesus' name, and we just usher in the peace of Jesus. What Jesus paid for, we ask for healing right now. God, we thank you, Lord, that you are healing people's digestive systems and their allergies, God. And we thank you, Lord, that you are releasing the work that you paid for on the cross almost 2,000 years ago, that when you went to the cross, you went so that we wouldn't just be saved, but so that we would be sozoed, made whole. And so we just say, be healed in Jesus' name. Get everything that Jesus paid for for you in Jesus' name. Amen? Awesome. I love a church family that prays. One of the things that I grew up with was whenever somebody had a need, we didn't just talk about it, we didn't philosophize about it, but we just prayed. And I think there's something uh, very biblical about being a people that respond to need in prayer. And so, way to go. As you experience healing, sometimes healing is instantaneous, sometimes it's a process. Here's what I would like for you to do. I would like for you to share that, write it on that card, because we, it really is encouraging as we hear those stories. Just uh, a couple months ago, my wife Lauren leads our, our college ministry, and, uh, and so we have some of the college leaders over for breakfast pretty regularly, and we were, we were praying, and there were two or three students who had digestive issues that got healed, and they could actually eat things that before would upset their stomachs. And so... I believe that God is in the business of healing. I don't think he gave that up uh, when Jesus went to heaven, but that he is continuing to do that. Amen? Amen. So uh, about a week ago, I was talking with a friend, and he's in his 40s, and his business is doing uh, pretty well. 
And uh, he's not, he now has people that are just calling him because he's so good at what he does. And they're saying, hey, would you, would you help us? And they're even calling him to fix the problems that other people in the same business have made. And so we were just reflecting and talking through life, and he says, "What?" He said, "Basically, what's going on? Like, how is this happening in my life? Like, why is there all of a sudden in the last couple of years this major shift?" And I looked at him and I said, "Buddy, I said, you're a 20-year overnight success." <laughs> and so often. We are so enamored by success, and when somebody sees incredible breakthrough, and, and all of a the sudden they're like cast into the limelight, and people are pulling on them and asking basically to borrow their favor and their influence, and, and what I've realized is that there is no such thing as an overnight success. It's just that we realize it overnight, and, and, and we're so enamored with like this big, like, oh my goodness, did you see, they just like came through, and everything changed, and it's like, no, they've been working at it for a long, long, long time, and then all of a sudden, something broke through, but they had been pouring into the same direction for their whole life, and when we look at the story of King David, what we find is that he was not an overnight success, but there was something that he was doing in the hidden place that attracted the favor of God that made him look like he was an overnight success. I thought that was good. Thank you, Kenny. <laughs> but to understand King David, we have to understand King Saul, the one that came before him. And so if you would go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we'll take a little bit of a look at Saul's life. And my task this morning is to cover David in his early years. And so we'll do that also. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, verse 7, we'll pick up halfway through that verse. It says, Saul remained... At Gilgal, and all the troops were with him, quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. Samuel was the prophet, like the spiritual leader of the nation, while Saul was the king. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Seems fairly simple. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Say Michmash. It's just a fun word to say. I thought you could enjoy it too. Verse 12, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Wow. What seems like a small mistake cost Saul everything. It's important to understand what God is after in this moment because it was not simply Saul's actions that displeased God, but it was actually his heart. Saul was trying to do something that is this incredible tension. He had 
like on one hand he was trying to please God. And then on the other hand, he was trying to please man. He made that offering because his men were leaving him and he's afraid, hey, I've got to make this offering so I keep God pleased with me and I've got to keep these people here and pleased with me. And what happened is, is that that tension was too much and it ripped Saul apart. Have you ever felt that way where it's like, man, all of these people want me to do this, but I know that God is calling me to that. And it becomes this incredible tension that we cannot endure. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, it's impossible for me to please both God and man. And so Saul found himself in that place. And the reason why I believe that Saul displeased the Lord is because he was not a man after God's heart. He was a man after God's hand. And what he was trying to do is use the favor of God on his life to enforce his agenda instead of be about, his, about God's agenda. And whenever we make that compromise, whenever we do anything so that God will bless us and instead of because we are after him, we make a huge compromise in our heart. And so here's Saul and he's stuck in a place of compromise because he's not wholeheartedly following God. Turn the page with me to 1 Samuel 15. We'll go to verse 19. Uh, yeah, 19. It's two pages in my Bible. Let's see. Verse 19. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Here's what's going on. They're in another battle. And God said, Take out everything. Don't leave anything alive or standing. And, and Saul instead left some of the best of the livestock alive. And, and in verse 20 it says, But I did obey the Lord. You understand, so often we try to justify the decisions we make. And so we think that, hey, if I, if I do a little bit here and a little bit there, but I can, I can make it myself sound justified in my agenda and say, you know what, I, I was really trying to please God. And we do it half-heartedly. I've been there before. He says, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said, and I went on the mission the Lord assigned me, and I completely destroyed the Malachites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle and the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is like the sin of divination, the arrogant like the devil, like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Wow. Then Samuel said, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid. You hear this? Whenever you feel shame, you can recognize it because you start to shift shame into blame. And so now he's not actually taking responsibility. It's a half-hearted apology. He begins to blame. And he says, uh, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Compromise 
will cost you greatly. And we live in an age of grace because we're under the new covenant, but don't be confused. There is still a price to compromise. And what God is after, we'll see here in a second, is people who don't compromise, but who follow wholeheartedly after him, regardless of the cost. Could you imagine with me just for a second, in that first scene, if Saul would have let all of the men scatter because he was more focused on pleasing God than attracting people to follow him? What would have God done? I imagine that he would not have lost the war with the hand of God behind him. And he would have been maybe even all by himself, but he would have had the, the armies of heaven right behind him, and he would have been totally fine. But so often we look at our conditions and we start thinking, well, I've got to do this and that. I've got to compromise a little bit here. I can't, I can't really be fully obedient because that doesn't make sense. And let me say to you that nothing makes sense in God's economy besides full obedience. What he's after is our own hearts. Now go with me to chapter 16, and we'll just look at verse 7 here. Now Samuel is, God said, hey, you need to go and anoint the new king. And, and so Samuel goes and it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In Acts 13, and, and even in the, the chapter before, what God said about David is he says that I am after somebody who's after my heart. Even a thousand plus years later in the book of Acts, he do, it doesn't describe David as a man who captured the heart of God. It describes David as a man who is after the heart of God. Think about that. What I realized when I married Lauren almost 13 years ago is that in marrying her, I could get one step closer, one step further down the road in pursuing her heart. And on that day, March 4th, 2006, when she said yes to me, I didn't say, hey, I've won the prize, I've captured her heart, and now I'm going to go on to other things. Instead, marriage was the next step in my pursuit of her heart. And, and today, my task as a husband is to continue to pursue her heart. Be, and here's, here's what's interesting in, in pursuing somebody's heart and in pursuing intimacy with somebody, and especially with God, is that every day something new is going on, and they are growing and changing and moving forward. And, and so... The, the husband that says to his wife, hey, I told you that I loved you when I married you, and if, if anything changes, I'll let you know. Don't, don't do that, by the way. Is absolutely foolish because he sees his wife as a one-dimensional object instead of somebody to be constantly pursued. And so, husbands, let me just, wives, if you could just plug your ears for a second. Husbands, let me just talk to you for a second. Pursue your wife. She was not somebody to conquer. 
She was not somebody that you could just say, hey, now I've got my wife, now let me go on to greater things. Continue to pursue her heart wholeheartedly. Go after it, discover it. And here's the way that we do that. You do it by curiosity. You do it by discovery, by continuing to ask questions, by paying attention, which I don't always do well, by looking and noticing the small things. Thank you. (laughs) I'm learning. But you're the newlywed. (laughs) You see, so often we stop being curious. We stop pursuing deeper. And, And we allow relationships to stagnate. And what's true about relationships is that they don't ever just plateau. They're either moving forwards or backwards. I had a mentor that was telling me, we were talking about delight and about curiosity, and he said the absence of curiosity is a form of control. Let me unpack that for you. What he said is, what I'm not curious about, I'm actually controlling. If I don't ask you questions in order to discover what's in your heart, the reason why I don't do that is because I don't want to know because if I know what's in your heart, then it makes me accountable to it. I've had people in my life before that wanted to control my life. They knew the outcome that they wanted for me, and so you know what they did? They never asked me questions about what was in my heart. Why? Because that then could compromise their plans for me. And so... This is not a sermon on marriage, although if you need a little marriage help, go for it. This is about pursuing the heart of God. You see, we can think in our journey of spirituality that all of a sudden I've got this thing figured out. But what we are not after is a religion or a philosophy or a system of thought. What we are after is the very heart of God which is something to be known and discovered and rediscovered and rediscovered again, that I would pursue him endlessly because it's not about how much I know, but it's about me pursuing him and responding to his pursuit of me. You see, God isn't looking for people who know it all. He's not looking for people who know how to say the right thing and sing the right song. What he is after is a people who are after his heart. I love what Proverbs says, that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search it out. Here's what that means, is that God hides things for us, not from us, but there are layers to who he is as a person. Just like Shrek said, that ogres have many layers, just like onions. So God, yeah, so I went there. So God has incredible layers. God is somebody to be discovered. He's somebody to be known. He's somebody to pursue that when your feet hit the ground in the morning, yeah, we talked about it a few weeks ago that you're on mission, but you're not on mission by yourself. You are on mission with God. And that you, every day is an opportunity to walk in deeper deeper intimacy with God. And David knew that. And that was the foundation of greatness in David's life. It wasn't even that Samuel anointed David king. That wasn't the foundation of greatness, though that was a step in his life. The foundation of greatness in David's life is that even before he was ever anointed, that he was a man after God's heart. 
And let me tell you something, that when you're somebody who is after God's heart, it grabs heaven's attention. And so we don't know a ton about the early years of David. We know that he was the youngest of his brothers, and as Steve suggested, quite possibly an illegitimate child, which would have been why they didn't call him when Samuel shows up and asks for the sons, and, and it's why it never mentions his mother in Scripture. And this is not just uh, my random thought or Steve's random thought. It's a part of Jewish tradition is that David was most likely an illegitimate child, which makes sense when you read Psalm 51 because it says this, Surely in sin my mother conceived me. See, we think about it that that's a statement about his sin nature. But if somebody said, hopefully there's no kids in here, surely in joy or in love my mother conceived me, what we would grasp from that was the condition of the relationship, right? And so, in that same way, we know this, that David probably was born with the cards stacked against him, the deck stacked against him. And so here he is, and he's blown it big. We're fast-forwarding after, this is after he took uh, a man's wife, got her pregnant, and then killed, had him killed, right? And he's, he's pleading before God, and he's saying, surely something is innately wrong with me. Surely from the very beginning, I was messed up. I was conceived in sin, and I was such a mess. And maybe you think the same thing. Maybe you think that there is something uniquely wrong with me. I believe that's a lie that the enemy continues to use. I, I, I've blown it and I've got these patterns of life because there is something that is uniquely wrong with me. There is something, I just can't ever get it right because there's something about the way that I was made, the, the circumstances that I was born into, the things that, that happened generations before me. And I want to say to you this, that there is nothing uniquely wrong with you if Jesus is in you. That there is no adversity in your life that you cannot overcome if the king of kings is ruling and reigning on the throne of your heart. And so David's in this mo moment of brokenness and he says, yeah, surely something's wrong with me. But what we see is that God actually enters into the mess of his story and brings forgiveness and continues to work in David's life. And I'd like to suggest that for you the same thing is the very desire of God's heart. You know, God isn't just after like, he's not like, well, if you come to me, then, yeah, it'd be a little bit of trouble. You kind of wear me out a little bit to bring redemption to your life. No, that is the thing that God is set on doing, that it isn't your idea that when you go to God and say, hey, God, I'm such a mess, would you work on my life? He's not like, well, let me see if I can fit you in maybe sometime next week. No, what God has been longing for is the opportunity to step into your mess and to bring redemption because he is after your heart. Way before, way before David was ever after the heart of God, God was after the heart of David. Here's another thing that we know about King David from his early years is that he would have been a skilled musician and a worship leader. And he may have been doing it only by himself when he was watching sheep, which was like the worst job to have in that day. But when Saul rebelled against God, God released him to go his own way. It may not seem gracious, but it says this, that, that the Spirit of the Lord departed him and that a spirit came to torment him. And so often 
we can say, well, that's just mean. God, I thought you were gracious. Here's the point of that story. And we actually see it play again in 1 Corinthians 5, and you see it in Romans chapter 1, that when somebody is absolutely bent on rebellion, on going their own way, there comes a point when God and Paul instructs the church in 1 Corinthians 5 to let that person have what they're after. That if they are really after, like Saul was, Saul was so after his own way that God said, look, I am done protecting you with my spirit. I'm going to let you have what you're asking for. And it's not that God is mean in doing that, but it's that he's justified. And here's the reason why he would do that. Because perhaps this side of the cross, it will draw you. You will find the pain and the misery and the death that is in sin. And even that will turn you back around so that you would follow God. But there's a point when the grace of God has to lift that is protecting you from the consequences of sin and allow you to experience it so that you'll realize what you're missing out on and you'll turn back to him. And sometimes in codependency, we try to prop people up and keep them from experiencing the consequences that actually it's God's desire that they would experience so that they could experience wholehearted repentance. Sometimes, actually every time, brokenness is required for repentance. And sometimes people need to experience the pain that they're causing everybody else It's not our heart's desire. I don't want anybody to be pained. But it's in those moments that it actually brings us to our senses. That's what was going on in the story of the good father, the prodigal son. It took him being in the pig pen, not even getting the scraps that pigs would eat, for him to come to his senses and realize that it's way better in his father's house. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe somebody convinced you to come or you just felt this tug on your heart to come, but you have been living in ridiculous rebellion to God. And it's been in your lifestyle. It's been in the decisions that you're making. It's been in the way that you see the world around you. And, and what God is saying is, hey, it's time to come home. In a little bit, we'll have our prayer team, not yet, I'm not done. We'll have our prayer team come forward to pray with you. And, and they'll, they'll just be able to, to help you take those steps back into your pursuit of God. It's interesting that, so David was, that's where I was going. He was an anointed musician. In fact, Saul was so tormented that he was actually looking for somebody to come play music. And boy, David, probably a young teenager at this point, was called into the palace of Saul Because he already had a reputation for being a skilled musician and that when he would play, the Spirit of God would come. Saul was so tormented that he needed relief. And so David, what an incredibly tense situation for David to step into. But because he was after the heart of God and not trying to make things work, he was able to experience the palace and even the cost of poor leadership, so that as a leader one day in the future, he would know how to lead. It's interesting that boy David, we know that in the next season of his life, when Goliath shows up, that he is not afraid to take on Goliath. We'll talk about this more next week. 
but because when he was with the sheep, he fought off lions and bears. I'd like to suggest to you that your hidden victories will become your public breakthrough. But so often, we want God to come through in the very moment that everybody is watching. And I think so often God's saying, hey, I've been trying to break through because I'm actually setting you up on this journey for me. And so David, while he was all alone, instead of running off like a hired hand, he fought the lion and he fought the bear in order to prepare him for where he was going. The battles that you are facing right now in private, that we just want to go away, I believe that God is actually allowing those because those are part of your preparation for the journey ahead. That God, he, he is wanting to prepare you and teach you how to lean on him. And so you may be going through difficulty and so often, right, we just want out of it. But actually, it's the heart of God that you would be victorious even in the secret place. That you wouldn't stay stuck, but that you would allow God to bring breakthrough. So we know this from a young age, David lived a consecrated life. The word consecration means to be set apart. It's connected to the word holiness. David from a young age, had set his heart on God. That's what he was known for. And I, I think in our day and age, so often, it's easy to fix our eyes solely on grace and miss the power of holiness and consecration. But what God is actually still after is a people who are holy. What God is actually still after is people who are holy. Can I get a better Amen. And here's what's incredible. So often we think of consecration as this ridiculously high standard that I have to meet in order to get to God. But consecration is actually this. It's not just that I am set apart to live in holiness, but it's actually that I'm set apart to live in relationship. See, I'm not just consecrated to the rules, but I'm actually consecrated to a person. When I married Lauren, I, I didn't just say, hey, I'm, I'm consecrated to, to only, you know, just, just to a monogamous relationship. But what I actually said is that I'm consecrated. I'm set apart where all of my affection, all of my romantic affection is fixed on her. And she said, oh, Lord. <laughs> but the point is, is not that I, it's not that I'm saying no to everything else because I said yes to her. But it's actually, it's not obligation, but it's actually devotion. And you see, we think, well, it doesn't really matter if I sin, if I dabble in this and that and do a little bit of this because there's grace. But grace is not about covering your imperfection. It's actually about empowering you to look more like Jesus. Grace, the beginning of grace is that it covers our sin, but that's not the end of grace. The end of grace is that it empowers good character. And so often we allow grace to be our excuse for sin. Well, I can go here and I can do this and I can say that and I can think these thoughts and I can be stuck in this pattern of sin because God is gracious. But that is no way to treat a lover. And when we recognize that I am not interested in keeping the rules for the sake of the rules, but I'm actually interested in keeping relationship, and so my 
devotion, my character, my holiness, my living a set-apart life is not about the rules. It's not about how I can look holy. It's not about how I can impress you. It's about how I can be set-apart, consecrated, devoted to God. And when we start to recognize the call of God and then the grace of God to empower us, it changes the way that we live. And if, we, if we're using grace as an excuse for poor character, then we don't have a grasp on what grace really is. Second Timothy 2, verse 20. This verse is not biblically connected to David, but I believe that it describes him well. It says, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some are for special purposes. Say special purposes. Say it again like you're still awake. And some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. God is still after a holy people. He's still after a consecrated people, and his grace actually empowers that consecration. You see, we can't purify ourselves, right? 1 John 1 verse 7 says it's the blood of Jesus that purifies us from all unrighteousness. You can't get yourself clean. So we don't have to try to clean ourselves up. We, we are doomed to death, and so Jesus took that and he died as us. You can't fix yourself. You can't clean yourself up. But here's what holiness does. Holiness recognizes that Jesus purified me in his blood, and so now I'm going to steward what he's paid for. See, purification is Jesus' part. Holiness is my part. Jesus raises this high bar. I think it's in 2 Peter. says, be holy even as I am holy. What he's not saying is that you have to figure it out on your own, but he's actually inviting us to participate with grace in order to live a holy life. And so holiness does not any longer depend on the rules. That's old covenant holiness. But what holiness depends on is actually guarding the heart of God. We're not set up to be like Saul if you're in Jesus. Because Jesus is in you. The Spirit of God is in you, not just on you, but actually in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And because that's true, then when you sin, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. And so often we've thought, well, if I do this, then God's going to leave you. No, you're one. You are connected. You are in covenant. You've made an agreement for the purpose of oneness. Your sin does not scare God off of your life which should actually scare you a little bit. Here's why. Because everything you do, you take God into. Everywhere you go, God goes with you. Everything you think, he is in your head too. You're one. And so what we get out of the New Testament is that my sin does not cause God to leave, but it does cause him to grieve. And that my sin... My, my acts of commission, when I do an act of sin, which starts in my mind, when, when I go there, it grieves the Spirit of God. 
And when I have an, a, an omission, a sin of omission, when I don't do the good that I'm supposed to do, it actually quenches the Holy Spirit. And we start to recognize, hey, this is not like I'm not a Christian when I walk into church and something else. No, if I've given my life to Jesus, the Spirit of God is in me. He's in you. And so you take him wherever you go. Holiness then becomes our hospitality for the Holy Spirit. So my life then welcomes him. It creates a space for him or it ignores him. You've had guests in your house before. You've been a guest at other people's house. Some people are really hospitable. Others aren't. Some people, you walk in, into their house, and they, they, they pretend like you're not even there. Others, like, wait on you hand and foot. What kind of host are you for the Holy Spirit? How do you host him? Are you, are you aware of his presence in your life? Do you host him well? Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He wasn't demanding obedience. He was connecting obedience to love. Holiness is not a response to the law, but to love. So let's just for a second compare Saul and David as we wrap up. Saul was after the hand of God. He was living a bless me now, God, life. And so when things became a mess, it was easy for him to try to figure out how to hold it all together on his own, how to please people, how to do whatever he could. David was after the heart of God instead of the hand of God. And so when it got really tough, Right, when Saul's after him, throwing spears at him, when all of his men abandon him, he's still after the heart of God. Why? Because he wasn't after the hand of God. I believe that the hand of God follows the heart of God, but sometimes there's a delay. And when there's a delay, when I, I'm pursuing the heart of God and I'm still stuck and it's miserable and it's really hard, will I give up? because I haven't seen the hand of God, or will I continue to pursue? I believe that when we continue to pursue the heart of God, even when we don't see the hand of God, that there is something that even pleases the heart of God at a deeper level. That that's actually an act of devotion, that it says, God, I'm not in it for what you can do for me. I'm not giving to you because I want you to bless me, but I'm giving to you my whole life because you're worthy. Because my whole life is worth giving up for years. Because you did the same for me. Saul saw God as someone to be appeased so his agenda could be blessed. David saw God as the agenda. Saul, Saul, it's like see Saul. Saul, Saul, God at a distance. To Saul, God was someone to be appeased and used. David walked in a in cutting edge revelation of the character of God. To David, God was someone to know. The revelation of who God is determines our relationship with God. If you don't see God as good, then you're going to want to keep him at a distance. If you don't see him as kind, then you're, you're going to hold off a little bit. If you don't understand that he's really gracious, then you're going to allow your sin to bring separation. David understood that God was not a deity that was far off, but he was actually somebody to be in relationship, and so he pursued him. Revelation flows from intimacy and 
is strengthened by curiosity. So here's my challenge to you this morning. Let intimacy with God be the foundation for your life. That we would all be known as Sozo Church, those are people who are after the heart of God. Miracles happen, awesome worship, average teaching, but those people are after the heart of God. I, I don't really care how else we're known. Seriously. What, what else matters but that we would be a people after the heart of God? And it's not that it's unattainable. He wants to give it away, but then there's still more. And so my challenge to you then is to live a consecrated life. That you would recognize that the blood of Jesus has purchased you so that you could live differently. Jesus is the best picture of a consecrated life. Consecration is not that you live out away from everybody else, but it's the place that your heart is. Jesus lived a consecrated life, and yet at the same time, Sinners were drawn to him. What if we lived in such a way that our consecration people knew, hey, that person carries the heart of God. There's something different about them. They are set apart, but it's not this holier-than-thou set-apart thing. They don't look churchy. They look like Jesus. Let that be how the world knows us. And if we're going to do that, then here's the key. We have to pursue the heart of God. So here's my challenge to you, Sozo Church. This can last for the rest of the year and the rest of your life. Set apart time to be with God. Set apart time daily to be with God. And don't just make it a routine. Make it all about relationship. I don't care if you've read the Bible through a hundred times. Continue to, to soak into Scripture until it soaks into your life. It's not about knowing it. It's about knowing the Father. It's about seeing Him revealed that we would be so into him that no matter what we did we're always after his heart I was around some guys last year that had this crazy ministry that they've literally seen hundreds of people raised from the dead and when you hang around them what you realize is that every time they're not doing anything they're listening to scripture they've just got it playing like for hours a day everywhere they went they were listening to scripture they weren't interested in knowing it they were interested in becoming it pray pray like God is somebody because he is somebody to know. Don't let your prayer life be a list for God. Let it be a relationship, a conversation. The word so often used in the New Testament for prayer is this word, persukomai, and it means to exchange your thoughts for God's thoughts. Let your prayer life be rich. Let it be a conversation. Share your heart with God and listen for him to share his with you. He's looking for friends. Would you be a friend of God? Worship. Worship like crazy. Turn on some music, but sing your own songs. I remember when I first started dating Lauren, I lived in England, and I would, like, walk the streets, and I think I had, like, Coldplay or something going on in my ears, but I would just start singing these love songs. She wasn't there. She was here. But it just overflowed from my affection for her. Sing your own song to God. It doesn't even have to be good. Who cares? And I love, I love devotion books. I love podcasts. I love learning from books and other people. But let me 
suggest to you that those are not a relationship with God. Those are awesome, and I want to learn from other people. We need to learn from other people. But those people have a relationship with God. Don't let their relationship with God become your relationship with God, but actually develop a relationship with God on your own. Does that make sense? It's like, let's grow from other people. You're listening to my voice. I hope that you've learned something, but allow God to be in relationship with you. I don't want to be your priest. I don't want to be your go-between. I want to encourage you that you would walk with God. That's what you were created for. You were created to walk with God. Would you stand with me? Prayer team, you guys can come on up. These folks are here just to love on you, to pray for you. If you want to give your life to Jesus, if you need to be filled or refilled with the Holy Spirit, if, if you need healing in your body, one of them gave me a word about somebody with lower back pain that God wants to heal this morning. Here's what I want us to do, though, before we go. is I want us to declare that we're going to be after God's heart, no matter what. So say this with me. Jesus, I'm after your heart. It's the one thing worth living for. Today, I decide to live a consecrated life, set apart for you. You're worthy. You're worth it. I love you. Amen.